Chapter Five of David Elginbrod. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. David Elginbrod by George MacDonald. Chapter Five, The Students. In wood and stone, not the softest but hardest, be always aptest for portraiture, both fairest for pleasure and most durable for profit. Hard wits be hard to receive, but sure to keep, painful without weariness, heedful without wavering, constant without newfangleness, bearing heavy things, though not lightly yet willingly, entering hard things, though not easily yet deeply, and so come to that perfectness of learning in the end that quick wits seem in hope, but do not indeed, or else very seldom ever attain unto. Robert Ascham, the Schoolmaster Two or three very simple causes united to prevent Hugh from repeating his visit to David so soon as he would otherwise have done. One was, the fine weather continuing, he was seized with the desire of exploring the neighbourhood, the spring which sets some wild animals to the construction of new dwellings incites man to the enlarging of his making as it were by discovery that which lies around him his own so he spent the greater parts of several evenings in wandering about the neighbourhood till at length the moonlight failed him another cause was that in the act of searching for some books for his boys in an old garret of the house which was at once lumber-room and library he came upon some stray volumes of the Waverley novels, with which he was as yet only partially acquainted. These absorbed many of his spare hours. But one evening, while reading The Heart of Midlothian, the thought struck him what a character David would have been for Sir Walter. Whether he was right or not is a question, but the notion brought David so vividly before him that it roused the desire to see him. He closed the book at once and went to the cottage. "'We're no likely to call ye anything but a stranger yet, Master Sutherland,' said David as he entered. "'I've been busy since I saw you,' was all the excuse Hugh offered. "'Weel, you're welcome new, and you've just come in time after all, for it's no that money hours sin I found it oot altogether to my own satisfaction.' "'Found out what?' said Hugh, for he had forgotten all about the perplexity in which he had left David and which had been occupying his thoughts ever since their last interview. "'About the crossbow and the birdie ye can,' answered David in a tone of surprise. "'Yes, to be sure. How stupid of me,' said Hugh. "'Weel, you see, the meaning of the hale ballad is no that ill to win at, seeing the poet himself tells us that. It's just no to be proud or ill-natured to our neighbours, the beasts and birds, for God made on all of us.' But there's harder things in nor that, and yon's the hardest. But you see it was just as an unlucky thoughtless deed of the poor old sailors, and I'm thinking he was so reproached in his heart the minute he did it. His mates was fell angry at him, no for killing the poor innocent crater, but for fear of ill luck in consequence. Sign when none followed, they turned wrecked round, and took away the character of the poor beastie after twas died. They approved of the very thing it was no doubt sorry for, but anything to hold off them of themselves. Ne sooner come the calm, 
Then round they goed again like the weathercock, and nothing would content them but hanging the dead crater about the old man's craig and abusing him forby. Say, ye see who they were a ween selfish creatures, and a handle word nor the man at was led astray into an ill deed. But still he mount it. So death caught them, and a kin of leaving death, and she de death as twere, and in some respects may be war than the other, got grips of him, poor old body. It's a fair and rick to the backbone of the ballant, Master Sutherland, and that eyes uphold. Hugh could not help feeling considerably astonished to hear this criticism from the lips of one whom he considered an uneducated man, for he did not know that there are many other educations besides a college one, some of them tending far more than that to develop the common sense or faculty of judging of things by their nature. Life intelligently met and honestly passed is the best education of all, except that higher one to which it is intended to lead, and to which it had led David. Both these educations, however, were nearly unknown to the student of books, but he was still more astonished to hear from the lips of Margaret, who was sitting by. "'That's it, father, that's it. I was just ettling after that same thing myself, or something like it, but you put it in the right words exactly.' The sound of her voice drew Hugh's eyes upon her, he was astonished at the alteration in her countenance. While she spoke, it was absolutely beautiful. As soon as she ceased speaking, it settled back into its former shadowless calm. Her father gave her one approving glance and nod, expressive of no surprise at her having approached the same discovery as himself, but testifying pleasure at the coincidence of their opinions. Nothing was left for Hugh but to express his satisfaction with the interpretation of the difficulty and to add that the poem would henceforth possess fresh interest for him. After this his visits became more frequent, and at length David made a request which led to their greater frequency still. It was to this effect. Do ye think, Mr. Sutherland, I could do anything at my age at the mathematics? I understand weel enough who to measure land, and that kind of thing. I just follow the rule, but the rule it's itself's a puzzler to me. I did not understand it by half. No, it seems to me that the best of a rule is no to make ye able to do a thing, but to lead you to what makes the rule right, to the principle of the thing. It's no at I misbelieve in the rule, but I want to see the rights of it. I've no doubt you could learn fast enough, replied Hugh. I shall be very happy to help you with it. Nay, nay, I'm no going to trouble you. You have enough to do in that way, but if you could just spare me one or two of your books, whiles, any of them, as you think proper, I should be muckle obliged to ye. Hugh promised and fulfilled, but the result was that, before long, both the father and the daughter were seated at the kitchen table every evening, busy with Euclid and algebra, and that, on most evenings, Hugh was present as their instructor. It was quite a new pleasure to him. Few delights surpassed those of imparting knowledge to the eager recipient. What made Hugh's tutor life irksome was partly the excess of his desire to communicate over the desire of his pupils to partake. But here there was no labor. All the questions were asked by the scholars. A single lesson had not passed, however, before David put questions which Hugh was unable to answer, and concerning which he was obliged to confess his ignorance. 
Instead of being discouraged, as eager questioners are very ready to be when they receive no answer, David merely said, Weel, weel, we mount bide a wee, and went on with what he was able to master. Meantime Margaret, though forced to lag a good way behind her father, and to apply much more frequently to their tutor for help, yet secured all she got, and that is great praise for any student. She was not by any means remarkably quick, but she knew when she did not understand, and that is a sure and indispensable step towards understanding. It is, indeed, a rarer gift than the power of understanding itself. The gratitude of David was too deep to be expressed in any formal thanks. It broke out at times in two or three simple words when the conversation presented an opportunity, or in the midst of their work, as by its own self-birth ungenerated by association. During the lesson, which often lasted more than two hours, Janet would be busy about the room, and in and out of it, with a manifest care to suppress all unnecessary bustle. As soon as Hugh made his appearance, she would put off the stout shoes, man-shoes, as we should consider them, which she always wore at other times, and put on a pair of bockles, that is, an old pair of her Sunday shoes, put down at heel, and so converted into slippers, with which she could move about less noisily. At times her remarks would seem to imply that she considered it rather absurd in her husband to trouble himself with book-learning, but evidently on the ground that he knew everything already that was worthy of the honour of his acquaintance. Whereas, with regard to Margaret, her heart was as evidently full of pride as the idea of the education her daughter was getting from the laird's own tutor. Now and then she would stand still for a moment and gaze at them, with her bright black eyes, from under the white frills of her much, her bare brown arms akimbo, and a look of pride upon her equally brown, honest face. Her dress consisted of a wrapper, or short, loose jacket, of printed calico, and a blue, winsy petticoat, which she had a habit of tucking between her knees to keep it out of harm's way, as often as she stooped to any wet work, or, more especially, when doing anything by the fire. Margaret's dress was, in ordinary, like her mother's, with the exception of the cap, but every evening when their master was expected she put off her wrapper and substituted a gown of the same material, a cotton print, and so, with her plentiful dark hair gathered neatly under a net of brown silk, the usual headdress of girls in her position, both in and out of doors, sat down dressed for the sacrament of wisdom. David made no other preparation than the usual evening washing of his large, well-wrought hands, and bathing of his head, covered with thick, dark hair, plentifully lined with grey, in a tub of cold water, from which his face, which was crimson-dyed in grain by the weather, emerged glowing. He sat down at the table, in his usual rough blue coat and plain brass buttons, with his breeches of broad-striped corduroy, his blue-ribbed stockings and leather gaiters, or quitacons, disposed under the table, and his shoes, with five rows of broad-headed nails in the soles projecting from beneath it on the other side. For he was a tall man, six feet still, although five-and-fifty, and considerably bent in the shoulders with hard work. Sutherland's style was that of a gentleman who must wear out his dress coat. Such was the group which, three or four evenings in the week, might be seen in David Elgenbrod's cottage, seated around the white deal table with their books and slates upon it, and searching, by the light of a tallow candle, substituted as more convenient for the ordinary lamp, after the mysteries of the universe.
the influences of reviving nature and of genial companionship operated very favourably upon hugh's spirits and consequently upon his whole powers for some time he had as i have already hinted succeeded in interesting his boy pupils in their studies and now the progress they made began to be appreciable to themselves as well as to their tutor this of course made them more happy and more diligent there were no attempts now to work upon their parents for a holiday no real or pretended head or toothaches whose disability was urged against the greater torture of ill-conceited mental labour they began in fact to understand and in proportion to the beauty and value of the thing understood to understand is to enjoy therefore the laird and his lady could not help seeing that the boys were doing well far better in fact than they had ever done before and consequently began not only to prize hugh's services but to think more highly of his office than had been their wont the laird would now and then invite him to join him in a tumbler of toddy after dinner or in a ride round the farm after school hours but it must be confessed that these approaches to friendliness were rather irksome to hugh for whatever the laird might have been as a collegian he was certainly now nothing more than a farmer where david elginbrod would have descried many a bonny sight the laird only saw the probable result of harvest in the shape of figures in his banking book on one occasion hugh roused his indignation by venturing to express his admiration of the delightful mingling of colours in a field where a good many scarlet poppies grew among the green blades of the corn indicating to the agricultural eye the poverty of the soil where they were found this fault in the soil the laird like a child resented upon the poppies themselves nasty ugly weeds we'll have ye admiring the smut nest said he contemptuously cause the bairns can black one another's faces with it but surely said hugh putting other considerations aside you must allow that the colour especially when mingled with that of the corn is beautiful they'll have it it's just there at i cannot abide the sight of it beauty ye may call it i see none of it i'd as soon have a red-haired baron as see the red-coated rascals in my corn i hope you're no going to cram stuff like that into the heads of the two laddies faith we'll have them sawin the ill-fared weeds among the weight nest poppies you call them well i wot that they're the pops and bairns and the scarlet woman to the mother of them ha 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 having manifested both wit and protestantism in the closing sentence of his objurgation the laird relapsed into good humour and stupidity hugh would gladly have spent such hours in david's cottage instead but he was hardly prepared to refuse his company to mr glassford chapter five